I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. This week's episode of the podcast really challenges us to think about different ways of understanding political engagement. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is something that you and I have talked about quite a bit in the past, which is for many people, the focus is on uh, voting, is that that is the penultimate uh, uh, way in which you politically engage. And there's just something so, uh, I mean, wrong about that. It's it's disheartening for a number of reasons, but it's also just, uh, you know, patently false. Right, and, I, and thinking about, voting as being the, or talking about it as the singular tool for political engagement feels so limiting, right? Especially when we're only thinking about certain types of campaigns or, you know, if we're talking about general election, right? So we're getting ready for a general election in November, right? And and, and so like for us, constantly finding that balance between saying, yes, engage politically, including registering to vote, participating in the voting process to the best of your ability if you can, serving as a poll worker, whatever it is around elections, but also saying there are so many other ways to engage in civic and political life. And I think that it's captured in this episode so eloquently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she really frames it for us as like that this, we have this civic and political engagement pie, right? And then... (laughs) There are a bunch of different slices, and one of those slices is voting. It is important, absolutely. But that there are other ways in which you can do this that take place all year long, right? It's not just once a year or once every four years or once every two years, but that there are ways in which you can have this ongoing effort to be civically and politically engaged. Yeah, and at all different levels. And I think that uh, our guest today, Katie Mormon, really captures all those intricacies of what it means to be engaged. Uh, And I'm super excited to have her with us today. Mormon graduated from Kent State University in May 2018 with her degree in political science with a public policy and international relations focus and minors in economics and nonprofit studies. During her time as a college student, she loved data and research, which resulted in her writing and defending her honors thesis, Draw the President, an analysis of children's images of the presidency and how they affect women in politics. She currently uses her love for data and research in her work for ActBlue as the state outreach data research manager, helping to lead the research team as they provide the outreach staff with the tools, information, and resources necessary to help progressive campaigns at all levels run the best digital programs possible using the power of small dollar donors. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. 
So just as a precursor, we should warn everyone that uh, when uh, Katie was a student at Kent State, she was a student of both Ashley and Lauren. And so we're very excited to have um, her with us today on multiple levels. So Katie, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is Act Blue? What do you do for them? And how did you get there? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, yes, I was very lucky to have you both as professors, fantastic professors. If you're a Kent student listening to this and you can take one of their classes, do it. Great experience. Um, But Act Blue is a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering the small dollar donors. We create a powerful online fundraising platform that really makes it easy for grassroots supporters to take action and help thousands of democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and nonprofits build people power movements. So if you've ever given to a democratic candidate, chances are you've given through Act Blue. Um, we're really proud of the work that we do. And my role at Act Blue is as the state outreach data and research manager, which means that I lead the data and research team. We provide their outreach staff with the tools, information, and resources to help those progressive campaigns run the best digital programs possible. We really want to make sure that we're providing that data support, as well as making sure that our team is involved where we should be involved and that folks that could benefit from that small dollar platform are benefiting from it. Um, So as As they said, uh, before I got here, I was a student at Kent State University. Um, I loved my time at Kent. I graduated in 2018. I had a fantastic public policy professor and a women in public policy professor. Loved both those classes. Um, I was really lucky in that, unlike, you know, a lot of students, I entered college 100% confident in what I wanted to major in. You know, I feel like it was kind of a a stereotype in some ways because I went to a very conservative Catholic school. And so political activism kind of became my response to that and my coping mechanism to that situation. And so political science was really just a natural fit because I, I knew I wanted to go into politics in some way. However, I wasn't so lucky in that I kept changing my mind as to what I wanted to do with it, which I, you know, I'm sure that, you know, as political science professors, you know, that's a very common, a very common problem in that major. Um, So as they said, I ended up graduating with my degree in political science with focuses in both international relations and public policy and minors in econ and nonprofit studies. Great. I loved it. But part of the reason why I was so torn as to what I wanted to do was because I really, I loved research. Like I genuinely loved it. Um, You know, finding those super difficult questions and attempting to answer them or put together some semblance of an explanation was really just a passion of mine. You know, everybody else would complain about those 10 plus page papers that happened in those upper division classes, but those were like my favorite part of the class because it really gave me a chance to design that question and answer it to the best of my ability. So, you know, that led to the honors thesis being a natural fit. So my junior and senior years, I was really lucky to be able to write my thesis for which I won first place at the Undergraduate Research Symposium, which was a super exciting experience for me and defended with the help of my wonderful advisor, Dr. Julie Maisie. And Dr. Boyd Swan was actually on the committee for, still really appreciative of that. And so when I graduated, I was really trying to find a way to kind of maintain that curiosity. But at the same time, my original plan, which had been 
I'm going straight to grad school, straight to law school, because I did love that academia aspect, was really affected by 2016. I think that that's, again, probably a common refrain from folks. After 2016 happens, all of a sudden, I was like, I want to be on the ground. I want to be organizing. I want to be involved in electoral politics. And so it was really you know, convenient because around March of my senior year, when I'm desperately trying to figure out what I'm going to do, because all of a sudden grad school's out of the picture. I'm like, I don't want to do that. So I have to like find a job, whatever. (laughs) And so I ended up finding this uh, research associate role at ActBlue. And I looked at that and I'm like, I'm looking at like the skill sets and it's like, you know, it's strong researcher, data analytics, some SQL, some R, which I always really loved, like kind of the quantitative stuff too. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like I can be on the ground. I knew Axblue, I knew what they do and I can continue to get better at research and I can really, you know, dig into this area that I'm so passionate about. And I'm really just so glad that I made that decision. You know, I'm, you wouldn't believe some of the candidates that we've gotten to work with. Like, it's really amazing when you get to look and you see these amazing candidates that utilize ActBlue. I'm honing my data analytics skills, but more importantly, I get to be actively involved in helping so many first time candidates or candidates who are, you know, giving a longtime incumbent a run for their money. And that's so exciting. And so I'm really glad that I had this chance. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that I also get to dive into the world of state and local elections, which is a wild and and crazy place. And, you know, I'm really just lucky that because of that, this role has continued to expand because more and more folks are utilizing small dollar donors and utilizing actively as a platform. So I'm just excited to see how this role continues to expand, really. I love that so much. Could you tell us a little bit about ActBlue? I know that they do small dollar donor work, um, but what's maybe a little bit about the history yeah. or how it how it came to be? What it, what are they doing? Yeah. Um, so ActBlue was founded all the way in 2004. So, you know, Lost just premiered. Smartphones weren't a thing yet. Um, and the intent was really to democratize what's really the least democratic part of campaigns, which is fundraising. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, everybody kind of has this stereotype in their head and it's unfortunately fairly accurate until recently of like, you know, there's the select few, the political donor class who choose who's going to get the money and who gets to be truly competitive. So our founders really wanted to use technology to make it easy for anyone to participate in our politics and to chip into candidates and causes they believed in. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of online fundraising before 2004. I mean, there's a lot of logistical challenges and beyond that, like, like I said, smartphones weren't even around. Like now we're sitting here, like I can give a $5 donation on my iPhone right now. That was just not the case when we were first started. And so the intention was really to make sure that folks had that opportunity. So since then, we've really been fortunate. We've helped campaigns and organizations on the left build grassroots fundraising programs, encouraging them to lean on those small dollar donors rather than go to these traditional big dollar donors, all while kind of advocating for these for these donors. We're really proud to work alongside so many organizations and candidates that are working for the people and we're really building a movement of grassroots change. 
So I, you know, I'm really excited because I get to be a part of this small dollar donor movement. And obviously um, you look at what the democratic requirements were to be on the debate stage. It's gaining steam, you know, it's gaining momentum. And so it's, it's really, really cool to be a part of that. Uh, you mentioned right, grassroots fundraising. So why is that an important strategy for enhancing civic and political engagement? So small dollar donations I mean, I can, you know, I can go on about this for forever because I really think that there are so many benefits to relying on those. Some of those benefits are felt by the donors. Some of them are felt by the campaigns. I think every single one of them is felt by our democracy at large because it's creating a more democratic system. So the shift towards small dollar donors is really just fantastic strategy because, you know, number one, it addresses the very real issue that campaigns require money. That's not a secret. Um, while encouraging campaigns to build impressive coalitions of donors, lowering the barrier of entry for folks who want to run for office, and giving donors concrete ways to support candidates and issues that they care about. Um, so like I said earlier, it's no secret that campaigns are wildly expensive. You know, funding a campaign is a challenge in order to really get your message out there and make sure that people remember your name when they get to the ballot box, you need to be buying digital ads, especially in, you know, especially now in 2020, digital is the way to go. TV ads, mailers, the ever popular yard sign that I'm sure everybody feels like there are 6 billion around them right now. And we know that even if a candidate goes in with the best of intentions, when, you know, you're fundraising in the traditional ways and, you know, the campaign is largely funded by a select few individuals, they may feel a sense of obligation to them. A study published in 2017 in the American Economic Review by Ulrich Man oh, sorry, Malmendier and Klaus Schmidt uh, came to the unsurprising conclusion that, you know, gifts induce decision makers to favor the gift giver. I really don't think that that's shocking to anyone, you know, <laughs> but it's it's nice to know that it is, you know, proven. <laughs> when campaigns turn to small dollar donors, what they're really do is doing is they're turning to folks who don't expect favors while still maintaining their ability to run a good campaign. Beyond that, when your entire campaign is being funded by a select few, we know that these donors are very unlikely to represent your constituents or the folks that you're attempting to represent, right? So, you know, in a case study of Washington, D.C.'s election, which Washington, D.C. is a diverse and amazing city, but Sean McElway found that the donors were wealthier, older than average Americans, and much more likely to be white and male than the general population. So when you shift towards that small dollar donor base, you really expand who gets to be a member of this political donor class, which is really, really awesome because it encourage you, encourages you to better represent your constituency. Plus, when a campaign expands their donor base, they're creating more than just a group of donors. Time and time again, we know that these donors often turn out to be a really powerful organizing team, which is incredibly important to have when you're running a campaign. So small dollar donors don't just give. They're advocates, they're organizers, they're volunteers, they're voters. They're really just genuinely some of the most passionate people out there. And we see really incredible engagement. So this cycle, um, as of the end of August, we saw 12.4 million people 
give through ActBlue to campaigns. And that expands from, yeah, city council elections all the way to the presidential. So it's, it's really wild. These are incredibly passionate folks. And when you turn to these donors rather than mega donors, campaigns are really creating a grassroots mo movement. It also lowers the barrier of entry for folks who are considering a run for office in the first place. So we provide the tools so that anyone that has a message that resonates with folks is capable of nurturing a grassroots movement. With grassroots support, anyone can run for office and be part of the movement for change. You don't need to get the approval of that select few individuals who are funding campaigns. And, you know, the last thing that I really want to talk about is what I would say is the most commonly cited benefit I hear about from, you know, friends and family and people that I talk to when they hear that I work at Act Blue. The shift to small dollar fundraising benefits the donors. So, I mean, this, you know, this podcast is called Growing Democracy. We know that it is very difficult to get folks engaged politically. So when we shift towards small dollar donors, we're encouraging people to participate in civic life. And we know that democracy works better when more folks are involved in civic life and when our campaigns are powered by the people that they're meant to serve. You know, I would say making a small dollar contribution is not just giving money to a cause. It's a form of activism. You know, it's contributing to something bigger than yourself and I think that this is especially important in this moment because, you know, we're in the middle of a presidential election. I mean, it's it's been a difficult week in general. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a movement for racial justice. People want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. They want to contribute. It's really just a simple way to disrupt the status quo. So when I give $5 to a campaign and it's one part of a campaign that's fueled by millions of other people, I get to stand in community with folks who share my beliefs. And it's a really easy way for me to become engaged and invest in my own community. You know, this focus on smaller donors has really been an invaluable way for us to refocus campaigns away from the drama and the intrigue and the politics and make sure that it's refocusing on the people it's meant to serve. Yeah, Katie, I mean, it, and I won't mention the name of the politician, but I was, I was speaking with a politician a few years back who had just newly been elected to the House of Representatives in Congress. And, um, he was very surprised to find out that, you know, he would he would go into session and he would spend his time, you know, on the floor and they would do some votes. And then immediately after that, he was whisked off to this building where it was just like booths. There were there were pods where people that were elected representatives would go in and they would just spend hours calling donors to try to get big donations. And it occurred to me, gosh, that that seems like that's the antithesis of serving the people that you're supposed to be uh, elected to represent. So. Exactly. I mean, anything that can cut down on call time is a good thing for our democracy. Get them out of call time, get them into the committees that they're supposed to be. I mean, yeah, it's it's off. It's honestly awful how much time folks spend courting those donors. So I'm gonna, I want to actually take this a di slightly different direction. We could spend the entire time critiquing the system and thinking about the ways that we're, you know, ActBlue is, is um, kind of 
creating a corrective to, to grow kind of small dollar donors and act uh, civic life. Right. However, I'm super intrigued by what you do and what the organization does around research. Could you tell us a little bit about the type of research that ActBlue is doing and how and why it's important to the mission of the organization? Yeah, of course. So, you know, across the organization, there's a lot of different things obviously going on because, you know, I work with organizers, political activists and enthusiasts, nonprofit advocates, software engineers, customer service pros, digital strategists, all of these people, you know, they come from diverse backgrounds. They have a ton of amazing ideas. And as, you know, academics, I'm sure you're well aware that amazing ideas often result in amazing research. And we're really focused on making sure that our tools continue to be as useful as possible to the left, right? Um, However, you know, speaking exclusively to my level team, I can really sum up our research by saying that we research into where ActBlue can have the greatest impact, both through finding races that may have Democrats who could benefit from using our platform and providing data support and help to folks who are already using us. Um, So one aspect that I know I've already mentioned, but I absolutely love about my job is I've really been able to dive into the often neglected state and local space. Um, Just the other day, I realized how much time I've been spending on studying county level elections when off the top of my head in response to something my dad had said. I was like, oh, there's 11 other Lake counties in the United States of America. And I'm like, why do I know that off the top of my head? So (laughs) I've really been lucky that I've been able to really delve into that. Um, You know, the state and local political universe is huge. And unlike federal elections where you know exactly what the calendar will look like and you know exactly what's up and you know exactly when it's up next, um, the state and local world, there's not a lot of consistency in the information that is out there. So we're compiling a lot of that information. We want to make sure that we're reaching out to anyone who can benefit from a small dollar donor base, whether they're running for state legislature or they're running for their town council or they're running for sheriff. Um, And so that involves maintaining office information, election calendars for those local offices, um, paying very close attention to how some of these competitive races are shaping up, you know, flagging some seats that would that we really should be keeping an eye out because <laughs> we're anticipating that it's going to be challenged next cycle. And then making sure that we're keeping a close eye on strategically important office types. Um, as you know, you're well aware, I'm sure this Democrats have really been focused on these DA and sheriff elections. So that's been a research focus for us is making sure that we have all the information on those elections so that Democrats who do want to challenge an incumbent who's been there for 25 years or whatever, we're making sure that off the bat, they have access to this tool so that they can build a small dollar donor base and they can, you know, run a a good campaign. Beyond ensuring that we're reaching out to folks who use ActBlue, we also really work to make sure that our users are getting the maximum benefit. Because, you know, even if we provide them the tools, if they're not utilizing the tools, then, you know, that's not really helping our democracy in the way that we want to. Um, So part of that simply means that I work to make sure that our state and local team keeps track of their accounts um, so that they're always ready to reach out to the person who has an account for 
you know, they've had it for months, but they haven't created a branded form yet. Or we know when a campaign sees an abrupt increase in volume so that our outreach associate can reach out and ask how we can best support them. So our team really works closely with state and local candidates to ensure that they're running great digital programs. And we try to make sure that we have the data so that they can at a glance say, okay, I need to set up calls with these folks so that we can, you know, help them out. Um, Beyond that, uh, let me preface this with a disclaimer. This is something else that I will absolutely nerd out about. I'm really passionate about data-driven campaigns. Quite simply, beginner's terms, what I would call a data-driven campaign is just a campaign that relies on testing their methods, evaluating the fundraising results, and making decisions based on those results. And I'm really lucky that ActBlue has a lot of tools already that allow campaigns to test their methods and evaluate their results. And, you know, the second big part of this kind of data support side of my job is making sure that any data needs that our campaigns have are being taken care of. Um, so this means providing direct data support to campaigns when needed. As you can imagine, a lot of small campaigns, they don't hire a data analyst. You know, when you're running your city council campaign from your kitchen table, you're not going to waste the money on somebody to dig through these CSVs and create a targeted email list. You're probably going to want something that does that for you or need some support there. And so I work with our outreach team to make sure that, you know, number one, campaigns are aware of what data resources are already available to them on our site and how to use them, which we, again, we do provide a lot. So I'm very lucky in that sense. But when a campaign does have a data request or, you know, they just want some more information on how do I create the targeted email list, then uh, my team makes sure that they have the help needed to capture that data or they have some guidance in that area. And we also, you know, just make sure that our tech team is kept apprised of what data campaigns are asking for that's not already available in a nice CSV. Because, you know, ideally that's what we want is we want campaigns to be empowered to do this for their on their own. So when it's a bit beyond their comfort zone, we help, but we also make sure that this is something that our tech team is surprised of so that we can keep getting better in the future. Now, in addition to your professional work experience, what are some of the other ways that you're kind of engaged with your community or communities? Can you just tell us mm -hmm. a bit about maybe other organizations or organisms that you've been involved with? Yeah. Yeah. So when I first moved to Boston, let me let me preface this by saying that this was something that I, I thought a lot about because I did struggle when I first moved to Boston. I had just graduated. I, you know, was living away from my family and friends. It was a new job. Um, and I ended up finding a lot of solace and, you know, trying to find ways to engage in my community in a way that made me really care about my new home. You know, I really wanted to create that connection. Um, so what that ended up being was I spent a lot of time. I had a friend who would go uh, once every two weeks to volunteer at the Greater Boston Food Bank. So I would go along with her. I attended a lot of civic series talks, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with those. Um, Boston has a really strong civic series program. And then I really ended up taking advantage of the fact that obviously in Boston, I was surrounded by some amazing schools who had amazing speakers all the time. So I would attend a lot of, you know, speakers at Harvard, Tufts, MIT when possible. And, you know, 
my last little, admittedly a little nerdy thing, but it did help me connect with my community was I did, you know, community theater. I really love music and I love theater. So I, you know, support the arts where possible. That's always a good thing. Uh, but I thought it was really important to just find ways to care about my community. And the biggest one that I would flag, if, you know, anybody's in the same situation where I was, where they're like in a new community and it is hard to form that connection initially, I would say. But civic series, those talks really helped me because those are essentially community talks where they bring in experts on these hot button issues in the community and the world at large. So like when I went to my first one, they have a city councilor and a public transportation activist chat about bike lanes in Cambridge and Somerville. And it really helped me shift my view of the community, you know, rather than focusing on the community that I had lost when I moved away, I really became passionate about this unique community I had found. When, the more I learned about my community and the unique issues that, you know, it was facing, the more connected I felt. So, you know, while I'm glad to be back in Cleveland working remotely right now, I do love Boston and Somerville, and I was really, really lucky to kind of gain a new hometown. Um, prior to that, it was the same <laughs> the same types of things, I would say. You know, I was involved in the college Dems. I volunteered at Hospice of the Western Reserve here in Cleveland, and I was an avid community theater-goer. And of course, you know, I stay engaged politically outside of work, making calls and donating to candidates I feel passionately about. In general, I, I just try to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do to feel that connection with my community. And for me, that means supporting the arts. That means, you know, engaging in these unique political issues and taking some time to volunteer. So you're really involved. And I love it because I've moved a lot as well. Like and it came to me, right? So and and being super interested in local civic and political life, um, and then moving around a lot means that sometimes it's really complicated, right? Like, so how am I going to become embedded in a part of this community and I just showed up? So I feel that. I feel that deeply. Yeah. I guess I've been here now for five years, so I, I need to stop using this as an example, but um, I moved a lot before that, and so it still yeah. resonates with me. But I'm, I'm really curious, because you're involved in a lot of different things, and you it, it comes through so authentically that you're very passionate about being engaged in the, the civic life of where you live. But what keeps you motivated? What motivates you to, to be engaged civically and politically? So I think... At this point in my life, I will say I benefit that there's a lot of external motivation. You know, there's the internal motivation, which I'll get into in a sec. But I think I'm really, really lucky because I genuinely am in a position right now where I work with such amazing people and they're really just inspirational to me. You know, I have coworkers who run their own nonprofits and their own businesses on the side while also doing like an amazing job working with me. It truly blows my mind. I get to work with candidates who are breaking through glass ceilings. They're passing really amazing legislation. They're running for the first time when they're, you know, only 22 and making me feel, you know, like a, like an old lady at 24. <laughs> so I would say, you know, I'm lucky in that in my job, there's no shortage of external motivation to, to keep engaged and maintain that passion for civic life and political engagement. Internally, 
which I think, you know, is, is also important to have because they, I would be lying if I said that sometimes there are days where, you know, you get frustrated with work and that external motivation is not doing it for you. But internally, as cheesy as it sounds, I really just focus on the belief that I think that we're all here to do what we can do to make the world a better place. As difficult as it is to believe right now, I genuinely think that our world is changing for the better. You know, I look at this small dollar donor movement and look at the way it's changing our political sphere and changing what the norms are. And I look at the role I get to play in that as a huge motivator. So I think in general, when you feel this responsibility to make the world a better place, it becomes a lot easier to maintain that motivation when the world frustrates you, (laughs) you know, when you've, when you've had a rough week. And so I would say that that's really where I get my motivation from. Now, uh, in our series, too, we ask everybody this question because we've gotten such interesting answers from people. I, I think that we continue to ask it just to see, is there like any sort of, I don't know, point at which they kind of uh, coalesce? But we're wondering for you, what does civic and political engagement mean? Like, what, what does that look like and why is it important? So for me... And, you know, I admit that this is not the academic definition of civic and political engagement, but what it means to me is really that you are doing all you can do to expand your vision of a just and better world beyond your personal life and into the world around you. And that often uses a variety of tools, including but not limited to voting, protest, civil disobedience, you know, educating your friends and family. I think that somebody who is truly politically engaged is capable of thinking about their personal values and their personal experiences contextualized with the world at large. And so, you know, I think that in the past or, you know, when we're traditionally talking about political and civic engagement, we've had too narrow a view of what kind of fits into that category, at least in my life, I think that I've noticed that there's this common misconception that our lives are kind of siloed into these categories and that there are many aspects of our lives that are non-political. I think somebody that's truly politically engaged does not believe that. (laughs) They understand that the personal is political and the political is personal and that civic and political engagement is kind of this natural extension of your personal decisions and values because they give you the chance to apply your values to the world around you, which is really just this powerful thing. And I think a lot of the reason why I think of it this way is I have spent a lot of time thinking about social justice. As I mentioned earlier, I went to Catholic schools. I was in Catholic school K through 12 not, you know, I'm not sitting here talking about making a religious argument necessarily, but it is like just kind of context for why I think about things the way that I do. Because no matter how my relationship with the church has changed and evolved or whatever, there's one takeaway that I have from school that I really loved. And it was the seven tenets of social justice that the that the church preaches. And so for context, those are life and dignity of the human person call the family and community, rights and responsibilities in creating a fair world, options for the poor and vulnerable, dignity of work and the worker, basic human solidarity and care for God's creations. And I think that, you know, 
why I kind of get this conception of civic and political engagement from those is because I just distinctly remember this class that we were going over this. And I, my poor theology teacher, I truly just like made his life so much more difficult because I just got in this huge argument. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you abide by these teachings in your personal life. If you're not going to take that extra step and become engaged politically or in your community and make sure that this is happening on the macro level, it doesn't count. <laughs> and I, I genuinely looking back, this poor theology teacher, I picked so many fights with him, but you know, I'm, if I can start a company and I can pay my employees a great living wage and they can have great benefits, that's a personal choice. It affects my own employees. It affects them positively. That's great. But if I'm really committed to this concept of the dignity of work and the worker, then I'm going to take it a step further, right? I'm going to take my values and this issue that I hold dear to my heart and this personal passion, and I'm going to try to change the world around me using public policy and political action as a tool to change the world. And so I think in general, by seeing civic and political engagement as kind of this extension of your values into your community and the world around you, we avoid this idea that we're siloed into the personal and the political and expand our definition of what counts as engagement. And we encourage folks to really think critically about their place in their communities and their role in changing those communities for the better. I think we should just have you be our spokesperson. I feel like you <laughs> captured that quite well. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've listened to any of our like episode zeros, yeah. which are just Casey and I talking. We, I think, say some of those words, but like in these very jumbled, like, I don't know what I'm thinking. I just have lots of ideas and they're not coming up very eloquently. Yeah. So thanks for that. Thank yes. you. <laughs> So you mentioned that you're 24 and that maybe you're working with some younger 20 something people. Um, So I'm not going to out Casey and I, but you're younger than us. And we've been interviewing not a ton, but quite a few younger activists and Mm -hmm. current college students. The youths, we keep joking, (laughs) the youths, uh, the youth are engaged right Mm -hmm. so when we're having conversations with people they're talking about the work that they're doing but there is this kind of frame around uh students are apathetic or young people are apathetic and they don't care but I mean when we're talking to people and when you're talking about the people you're working with I feel like that's it's not an accurate depiction so in terms of kind of this this disconnect how do you make sense of mobilizing kind of the yeah. youth, whether it's the youth vote or youth around political and civic life? How, do you, how are you making sense of this? So for me, kind of going back to this idea that political engagement is this extension of your values into the world around you, I really think that's kind of a double-edged sword, to be honest, because while it is a really powerful way to view engagement that really encourages us to think critically about our own values and our role in our communities. It also makes it feel wildly disheartening when your country, when your community does not reflect the values that you hold dear at all. And I think that young people are really kind of faced with a world that they look at and they say, this doesn't reflect who I am. This doesn't reflect who I want to be. And because of the time that they've grown up in, they have limited faith in the systems that have created this world to change it. And, you know, it's 
absolutely no secret that progress is slow and it's difficult. But I think that that can be very, you know, it's it's something that's very difficult for to understand. And I know I've struggled with this in the past as well. And I think, you know, so there's genuinely some disconnect. I also think that some of it is a perception that we kind of make this disconnect worse. So what I mean by that is our traditional perception of political engagement and how we get folks politically engaged can sometimes exclude the ways that young people feel most comfortable engaging politically. We tend to jump to vote, register the vote as like the sole indicator of somebody who's politically engaged. And while yes, young people go vote if you can, like, please do it, register. It's, it's important. You have to like, think about the fact Young people are living through a difficult period to have faith in voting as a solution. I mean, again, I'm 24, two presidential candidates in, you know, that I can remember there being drama over, (laughs) did not win the popular vote. When you think about people my age, when you think about people younger, that's the reality that they're faced with, that they, they know Trump didn't win the popular vote. Bush didn't win the popular vote. So why should I have faith in this system? And so I think when you present political engagement as equivalent to voting, young people who are disenchanted by that specific part of the political process may disconnect entirely because it's kind of presented to them as like the end all be all of political engagement. To clarify, we can and should encourage young people to vote. I think that it's really important that we continue to encourage that. But I also think that the way it's presented needs to change. We need to kind of acknowledge the disconnect and present voting as a single tool in the politically engaged person's toolkit rather than like this end all be all, the vote is sacred. That's that's it. That's your one chance to be an engaged citizen. When you present it as Every protest you go to, every $5 contribution you've made to a bail fund or a progressive candidate, every time you've corrected misinformation that grandma heard on Fox News on Facebook so that all of her, you know, friends could see, you are engaging politically, whether or not you, you know, you conceptualize it that way. So I think that when young people know that political engagement isn't this singular action, but rather using a variety of tools from, you know, your, your political toolkit, which I think is much more extensive than folks have been led to believe. I think that it makes far more sense to remain engaged, even after something happens that may affect your faith in the system. If we continue to present it as just voting, that's, that's a difficult sell, to be honest, because oftentimes I think that voting compared to protest, compared to, you know, these grassroots movements is not as immediate, immediately obvious of the effect it's having on our society. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just want to tell our listeners, we didn't lend Katie our soapbox. She built her own. <laughs> they just happen to be very similar in shape. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I mean, a hundred percent, we couldn't agree more uh, with that sentiment. And, um, and I think that, that it really does reflect uh, a, a, an interesting perspective that a lot of people don't take into account. Uh, so what is it that you want to share with us that we haven't asked about? What other words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? I mean, the only other big thing that I want to get out there is that I'm just excited to see how our political systems continue to react to the, this grassroots movements. I think that we're genuinely living in a period of change. Small dollar donors are just one tiny part of that. And it's really just us starting to take back our political process and re-democratize at least one aspect of our elections. We're living in this super connected world that makes it easier than ever for us to work together. And beyond campaign finance and fundraising, grassroots movements are powerful. They're absolutely nothing to scoff at. And lastly, I'm going to get back on my soapbox for one more second and just re-say this because look at the term political engagement and see all of the complexities that that term implies. It's never just voting. You know, it never stops changing. After all, look 20 years ago, like a super common form of political engagement now, you know, taking your smartphone, giving a few dollars to a candidate when they do something that you like or when something awful happens and you want to react to was not a possibility, much less, you know, a valid and common form of political engagement. I think it's going to continue to evolve. And I only hope that we continue the work to democratize every single aspect of our political system in the future. Oh my goodness. Thank you for joining us today. Like I just, I'm just sitting here in awe, like, yes, could you keep talking? You seem to summarize this so much better than us. We just like to like talk off the cuff and I'm like, Oh, these are coherent thoughts. I love it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting. I love any chance to get on my soapbox about small dollar donors and about political engagement and young people. So, you know, <laughs> always exciting. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.